Well, good morning, High Point. It's so good to see all of you here today. Thank you for joining us in person. Those of you who are online, I do want to mention one other ministry, an incredible ministry here at High Point that was not mentioned in that video that you need to be aware of called Celebrate Recovery. Getting a shout out from my peeps from CR. If you're struggling with a hurt or pain or a hang-up or an addiction of some kind, CR is a safe place for you to come. It's a place where you will find community. It's a place where they will lead you to the solution to your problem, and that is Jesus Christ. What I love is our leaders from CR have all found that path. They've all been recovered from struggles that they've had in their own life, and they are here to help you. So we'd love for you to come out on Friday nights. They also have childcare now for the kids, and there's no reason for you not to come. So Friday nights at 7 o'clock, I know that they would love to have you and to be a part of their family. Can I just start this morning by saying and kind of reiterating what Chris said of how much that I love Easter Sunday. There's just something special about this day. I get excited about it. I love to get up in the morning and I can't wait to get here. It's such a beautiful day. It is a day that marks an event in history that is at the very pinnacle of our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. Everything that, that we believe in hinges upon this great day of celebration as we, res, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. You see, Easter, the Easter story is not just any story. It's, uh, it's not a work of fiction. It is, uh, it is not some kind of a fantasy. It is not some kind of a pipe dream. It's not based on some kind of a superstition, as you find with many other celebrations. The resurrection of Jesus is factual. Because it is on this day that our Lord, after having been beaten and after having suffered and having died on the cross, resurrected from the grave. The tomb, as our graphic says, was empty. And because of that moment, your life no longer needs to be empty. Because Jesus defeated Satan and death and the grave. So that we can now, while we're here, live an abundant life with him, and after our physical death, we can spend eternity in his presence in heaven. And physical death now becomes nothing more than a doorway to an infinitely better place. This is not just what we believe, but this is what we know to be true. Because the scriptures are full of, of, uh, of, of instances where we see that Jesus was seen after he died after he arose, and i am talk about that in just a minute. But also the, the scriptures tell us that for the believer in Christ to be absent from the body after death is to be present with the Lord. So allow me to make a statement that when I was a child, my pastor would say every single Easter Sunday, he would say, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Those words have stuck with me my entire life, and it's the first thing I think of when I get up on Resurrection Sunday. Last week, if you were here, we studied the crucifixion, and I said to you that there would be no Easter without the cross. Well, I would like to make a statement to you today, and it is this. Without Easter, there would be no hope. So we're going to spend our time together by trying to better understand this glorious news and our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to leave here today with a better grasp of what it, why it is that we as Christians celebrate Jesus' empty tomb every spring. And also for you to realize that it really happened and also for you to realize that it was a really, a really big deal. Because you know, there are a lot of people out there who will do whatever they can to refute the truth of the empty tomb. And the reason they do this is because it's an inconvenient truth for them and for the theology that they stand behind. I really like what author Tim Keller wrote about this. He said, the resurrection was not preached in the early church as a symbolic representation of wonderful higher truths like we must always keep hope. The resurrection was preached as a hard, bare, terribly irritating, paradigm-shattering, horribly inconvenient, but impossible to dismiss fact. If you will recall, the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, and he was trying to straighten them out on this very thing. Their, their theology 
about Jesus' resurrection and about eternal life that follows for those who believe in Christ Jesus. It seems like, just like in our day, there were many voices saying that there is no eternal life, that when you die, you simply die. Game over. I want to share with you his written response. Go ahead and turn to, to Second Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 22. It will be up on the screen behind me if you don't have your Bibles. But this is Paul's written response to that whole line of thinking. And he wanted to share this with the church in Corinth. He writes, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Referring to those after Christ, those who are in Christ Jesus who died. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have the hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. There is a common question that is often asked of people of faith. People will ask you, why are you a Christian? Why is it that you believe in Jesus anyway? Well, that scripture to me kind of sums it all up in two very, very interesting and, and easy to understand points. First of all, Christ died, but he rose again. And number two, because of that fact, when I die, I will be made alive and I will live eternally with him. And to help you better understand this, I kind of want to go over uh, a quick review of what happened following Jesus' crucifixion that we discussed last week. Jesus was nailed to that rough wooden crossbeam about 9 a.m. on that first Good Friday, and he hung there till his death, which was right at about 3 p.m. After having secured permission from Pontius Pilate, Jesus' body was taken down and placed into a tomb, a borrowed tomb, from a man named Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea. He was a Pharisee, and he was a secret follower of Jesus. Well, three of Jesus' followers, all females, all named Mary, followed Joseph and the others to that tomb. But since the Sabbath was quickly approaching, the women did not have time to properly anoint Jesus' body for burial. So they went home and they came back on the third day, on that first Easter Sunday. When they arrived to the tomb that morning, they discovered that the huge stone that was set in place to seal off Jesus' tomb had been rolled away. They also discovered that the Roman centurions that were posted to keep an eye and to guard that tomb were also gone. And in their place were, were angels who gave these women literally the best news ever heard in the history of this sorry planet of ours. They said in Matthew 28, 6, he is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Now let me just say that there is all kinds of biblical and historical records and truth and sightings that prove what the angels said that morning to be true. There were many eyewitness accounts of people who were with Jesus after his resurrection and prior to his ascension to the right hand of the Father in heaven. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the resurrected Christ appeared to more than 500 people. But if you happen to be a skeptic here this morning, rather than try to convince you through eyewitness accounts, I want to take the time to zero in on just one irrefutable truth. I'm talking about the 
otherwise unexplainable, life-changing impact that the resurrection had on a particular man. The man that God used to write the scripture that I just read to you this morning, the Apostle Paul. Most of you are aware that Paul used to be called Saul, and he was a Jew. He was a member of a highly esteemed tribe of Benjamin, and he was a well-educated Pharisee to boot. If anybody was a Jew through and through, it was Saul, and he was proud of that. And I emphasize his stalwart Judaism because Jewish people are the last people on the face of the earth to be open to the idea that Jesus could be God. You see, Jesus came as a man. The scriptures say he was the incarnate God. What does that mean? It means that Jesus was every bit human and yet every bit God. And though he came to this earth through the virgin birth with Mary, he was human, but he was also God. But the Jews chose to only look at the humanity of Jesus and therefore believed that this human could not possibly be God. And to be preaching this kind of thing to them was nothing more than heresy. Remember, it was Jesus' claim to be God that led the Jews to force the Romans to crucify him. My point is that claiming a man was God was going completely against old Saul's worldview. Because in Jesus' day, the Jews wouldn't even say the name of God out loud. When they added vows to the Old Testament scriptures, they did it for every word except the name of God. To them, the name was too holy to pollute with vows. So how would a prominent Jew like Saul come to worship Jesus as God? As many of you know, before Saul became a Christian, like most of the religious leaders, he was offended by Christianity. He hated the gospel message of Jesus Christ. He was seriously irritated by those Christians who were proclaiming the idea that there would be no more need for a temple. And that thanks to Jesus' death on the cross, there would be no more need for, for uh, sacrifices of sin through the blood of animals in the temple. These, these revolutionary teachings seemed outrageous to him. In fact, he was, he was so enraged by all of this that he took a hiatus from his regular duties as a Pharisee, and he made it his life's goal to arrest, to imprison, and yes, to kill as many Christians as he could. He wanted to wipe this new heretical religious sect right off the, the, the face of the planet. But then something happened, something that shattered Saul's deeply held convictions. And that something was someone whom he met while traveling on the road to Damascus. On that day, Saul saw and talk to. He had a personal encounter with the risen Savior. We know this because the scriptures say that those men who were traveling with Saul, they stood there speechless. speechless. They heard the sounds, but they didn't see anyone. But Saul did. On that road, Saul was confronted with the unshakable fact that Jesus, who had been crucified, killed, and buried in a tomb, had in fact risen. And he was having an experience with him at that moment. In our day, there are many people who are just as offended by Christianity. In other words, there are a lot of Saul's out there running around. They don't like the Bible's teachings on creation. They scoff at the idea of Noah and the great flood, of Moses parting the Red Sea, of Joshua and the walls of Jericho. They think biblical accounts like that are just totally ridiculous. They're offended by the Bible's teachings about sex, about marriage, about immorality, and so on. But I, I think it's safe to say that that first Saul was actually more offended by Christianity than even the current Sauls of our day. And the Bible tells us that Saul had the authority to arrest anyone who belonged to the way. The way was the, the, what they called those followers of Jesus after his crucifixion. He was so intent on opposing the name of Jesus 
that the scriptures say that he breathed threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was a man who truly hated Christ, and that trickled down to his hatred of those who were likewise associated with him. But when Saul realized that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead, it didn't matter that Christianity offended him anymore because he could see with his own two eyes, he could hear with his own two ears that it was true that Jesus was alive. And remember, Saul's conversion was a shocking thing to the Christians of that day. To give you an idea of how shocking that might have been for them, to put it into modern day terms, it would be as if Stephen Hawking, who was at one point one of the, one of the most prominent atheists in the world, who died not too long ago, having a press conference before he passed and said, I was wrong. There really is a God. Jesus is his son. I saw him. I had an encounter with him. Creation, the flood, all of that stuff is true. His staunch followers would have thought he went off the deep end. And that leads to something else that we need to realize when it comes to understand why we celebrate the empty tomb. The resurrection of Jesus is, is key to our understanding of the entire Bible. What I mean is God's written word only makes sense if Easter is true, which it is, because he is risen. He is risen indeed. For example, the, the Jewish sacrificial system only makes sense if it points to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The Jewish Passover meal only makes sense when paired with the resurrection. The promise that Abraham's descendants would bless the whole world only makes sense if you realize that that happens through Christians sharing the good news of our risen Lord with others. But let's go back to Saul for a moment. The Bible says that when he met our risen Savior, he was stricken blind for three days. Author Don Carson creatively reconstructs what might have been going on in Saul's mind during those 72 hours of darkness. I want to share it with you. He points out that Saul, the Pharisee, would have indeed been offended by God, by, by Christianity, for many reasons. The main one being the, the Messiah, by definition, would be anointed. In fact, the word Messiah means anointed one, which means the chosen one, the beloved one. In other words, a Pharisee like Saul believed that the Messiah would have to be blessed by God. The Messiah would have to have the favor of God and would in turn please God. But here's Jesus claiming to be the Messiah, and yet he dies on a cross. Even Romans knew that this was the most shameful way for a person to die. Everyone knew that to die on the cross was a bad ending for people who were the lowest form of life on the planet. Saul would have, would have remembered in Deuteronomy where it said, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. He also knew that while on the cross, Jesus cried out, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In fact, the truth is Paul was, Saul was probably standing right there with the other Pharisees when Jesus said that. So let me share with you this creative summary of Saul's thoughts during these three days of darkness as described by Don Carson. Day one, Christianity makes no sense because the Messiah would be blessed by God, supported by God, and accompanied by God. But this guy, Jesus, was abandoned by God. He was cursed. So what kind of salvation could a man cursed and abandoned by God bring? But now on the Damascus Road, Saul is holding on a conversation with the risen Jesus, who was raised from the dead. And he thinks, wait a minute. If he's raised from the dead, then God did vindicate him. And God is pleased with him. And God does love him and bless him. Then Jesus must have been cursed and abandoned for someone else's sin, not his own. Day two of his blindness. He remembers what was written in the Old Testament. He would have thought of Isaiah's writings and, and said, okay, in the first part of Isaiah, the Messiah is a great king. But in the second half, it's all about this strange figure known as the suffering servant. 
They couldn't both be the same person, could they? Yeah, I guess they could. Then he thinks of the temple. He thinks of the sacrificial system. And these thoughts start to fill his mind. Did the blood of the bulls and the goats and the lambs that have been sacrificed over all these years actually and completely atone for sins? That wouldn't make much sense, would it? Well, what if it was supposed to? What if the purpose of all those sacrifices was to point to something or someone else? What if it was all pointing to Jesus? But if it's all pointing to Jesus, what does that mean about the temple? What does that mean about the sacrificial system? Day three of his blindness, he wakes up and his mind goes to Ezekiel and Jeremiah. He thinks, look at those places where it talks about the new covenant where it seems like God is actually talking to people face to face, writing his law in their hearts. It's almost like there's no need for a priest anymore. There's no need for a temple anymore. What is this new covenant discussion about? And how do we understand that? Well, with Jesus' life and death and resurrection, then it makes sense. And what, the, what about the promise to Abraham that through his descendants, all of the nations of the world would be blessed? How will that ever happen? Maybe that happened through Christians, followers of Jesus becoming children of God through faith. Through his creative writing, Don Carson writes what I believe would be a very realistic thought process that was going on through Saul's mind during that three days of darkness. And can you see what's going on here? Once Saul understood the resurrection, once he understood the cross, he was able to look back on the Old Testament that he was so greatly well-versed in, and it all made sense to him. It all connected. Those gray areas where he didn't understand fully, but they filled in the blanks with other thoughts, he now understood. You see, Saul expected a strong Messiah to come and to save the strong. But instead, he suddenly realizes, wait a minute, it's a Messiah coming in weakness to save those who in their weakness admit their need for a Savior. And once he saw that, it opened up everything, including his eyes. Because then God sent a Christian named Ananias to the house where Saul was staying. And it was there that Saul professed his faith in, God, in Jesus, and Ananias placed his hands on Saul's eyes, and he was healed. And you know something? I can't help but compare the three days of darkness that Saul went through with the three days of Jesus lying in that tomb. Because Saul was dead. He was dead in his own sins, but then he was reborn into new life. That's the way it is for everyone who puts their faith in Christ Jesus. So the resurrection is indeed key to our understanding of the entire Bible. In fact, I think that 2 Corinthians 1.20 makes my point. It says, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. The answer to all of our questions are found in Jesus because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Now to help us to further understand our deepen our understanding of the empty tomb, I want to try to explain why it is that we rise on this day to celebrate and worship the risen Savior. I want to explain to you why we as Christians celebrate Easter. And first of all, we celebrate the forgiveness of God. In the text that I read earlier, Paul, formerly known as Saul, writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So Jesus' resurrection is the foundational block of our faith. Without that, we are without hope. We cannot be reconciled to God the Father. How many of you ever played the game of Jenga? If you have, you know how the, the, the game ends. After carefully pulling blocks from the bottom of that game and stacking them more carefully on the top, eventually one player pulls one too many. And the whole thing comes crashing down. Well, in our text, Paul says that the empty tomb is like 
that one Jenga block that, that holds up the entire tower. Without it, if, if you pulled that block out, our Christian faith would come crashing down. Look back at our text again, where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless. Without that foundational resurrection block, you can just expect that the rest of, of our blocks are gonna fall. Like the faith in Jesus block, like the forgiveness of sins block, like the eternal life block. But wait, when you put that resurrection block back in there, you have to because, that's, because Jesus died, but he rose again. That is the foundational block of life and of, of any game. And the fact is this, Jesus is the only one that I knew that had a borrowed tomb. He knew he wasn't gonna stay in that tomb. That's why it was borrowed. And that means our faith in his ability to forgive us is verified. He knew before it happened. He predicted before it happened that he would die, but he would rise again. And you know what? The tower of our faith can never be torn down because of that. This week I was thinking about the image of that shining gold cross that was left standing after the fire at the Cathedral of Notre Dame last year. I don't know if you remember, it was right around Easter time. And that place caught on fire. And I don't know how many of you saw the footage when that happened on the news, but I don't know if you noticed that was not a traditional Catholic cross that was still remaining. What I mean by that is the image of Christ was not on that cross. I like crosses that don't have Christ on them. And the reason I like that is because just like the tomb, he's not there. And he's not on the cross anymore. He did his work. And so to see him on that cross, in my mind, is counterproductive other than to remind us that he did hang on that cross. Because he is risen. He is risen indeed. To me, the fact that those massive fires could not take down that cross reminds me that even the gates of hell cannot knock our faith over. No, they can't. Because Jesus rose from the dead. And his resurrection proves that he's the only one qualified to die for our sin. And he did. This means our sin, past, present, and future, can be erased, just like an Etch-a-Sketch when you're done with it. It's gone. The Bible says our sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west. Never to be remembered. That is something we're celebrating. If I asked all of you this morning if you have sin in your past that you wish you could erase, every one of you would raise your hand today, including the man standing before you, because we have all done things that we are ashamed of, deeply ashamed of. But because of the empty tomb, our sins can be washed away. Do you understand now better the importance of this empty tomb? Everything about our faith as Christians is built on what happened on that third day. Jesus' resurrection not only validates our faith, but it marks it as the true faith. I recently read about a Muslim college student who came to believe in Jesus Christ. One of his friends was shocked. He asked him, he said, why did you become a follower of Jesus? And here's his response. He said, it's, it's, it's simple, really. Imagine that you're walking down a road and you come to a fork in the road and there are two people there to follow you as your guide along the way. One of them is dead and one of them is alive. Which one would you follow? Indeed, I think we would all put our faith not in the dead person, but the alive person, the only individual who has ever defeated death. The only one who has the proven authority to forgive you and I of our wretched sinful lives. Well, here's the second reason we celebrate the empty tomb. We celebrate the power of God. The empty tomb is a sign of God's limitless power. I want you to imagine you were one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And you watched the horror of the crucifixion unfold before your eyes. Can you imagine looking at his unrecognizable, brutally beaten and pierced body, 
And then you meet him three days later after his resurrection, and he is complete and he is whole. Well, if they had any doubts at that moment about his omnipotence, that was put to a rest right there at that moment. I want to ask you a few questions. Do you believe that it is possible for selfish people to be unselfish? Is it possible for immoral people to be given self-control? Is it possible for cruel people to be made kind? Or for sour people to be sweetened? <laughs> that would be marvelous if it were possible. But I'm here to tell you today, because of Jesus' resurrection, we know that that kind of change is possible. It proves that God has the power to change human nature, to change human beings. You heard the testimony of our associate pastor. He was an atheist. He didn't believe there was such a thing as God. God turned his life around. He is now here. Every one of you has a story how God has transformed your life. God has the power to transform lives. This is what Paul was talking about when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5:17, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here." And Paul knew that this was true by personal experience. That same resurrection power that, that God displayed in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead, well, that's available to us today. He can raise us from the death of sin into a life of righteousness. You see, becoming a Christian is more than turning over a new leaf. It's becoming a new person. Many of you might recognize this face on the screen behind me. His name is Bart Millard. He was born December 1st, 1972 in Greenville, Texas. To the casual observer, his childhood looked perfectly normal, but it was anything but that because Bart's formative years were marred by abandonment and physical and psychological abuse. Bart was primarily raised by his father, Arthur. His mother's name was Adele, and for years they had a great marriage until one day Arthur was accidentally run down by a semi-truck at his place of work. Miraculously, there was not a broken bone in his body, but his brain was irrevocably damaged, and he stayed in a coma for eight weeks. After that accident, Arthur changed. The brain injury led him to break out in fits of rage set off by the most insignificant things. And though he never laid a finger on his wife, he would intentionally break everything that ever meant anything to her or to their son, Bart. And eventually Adele buckled under the weight of this verbal, emotional, and psychological abuse. As far as she could see, she had no other choice. And so she left Bart when he was in the third grade. Outside of the home, no one saw the man that Arthur had become. All people thought of was that there was a flighty mother who had turned her back on her family. But what we see on the surface isn't always true, is it? There's always a full story that most of the time we never, ever get. Because when Adele left, Bart became the focal point of his father's uncontrolled anger. Spankings led to full-blown beatings. And Bart's dad became an irredeemable monster. And all Bart could think about as he was growing up, that I need to grow up fast, I need to get out of this house, and I need to move on. That's my only hope. And he did. But then something happened. Bart's dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And this led his father, Arthur, to go on a search. And he turned to Jesus. And his dad started attending church. And he started studying the Holy Scriptures. And he asked Jesus to forgive him of his sin and to come into his heart. And our risen Savior did exactly that. And when that happened, the monster disappeared. Jesus transformed Arthur from the inside out. Today, Bart describes his dad as the godliest man I ever knew. When his dad died, Bart, who is the lead singer of the Christian group Mercy Me, he wrote a song called I Can Only Imagine. We've all heard that song before. 
talks about how we will respond when we come face to face with Jesus. That's the kind of power that was able to change the life of Bart's dad, Arthur. And it was made possible through the power of Jesus' resurrection. And understand that you and I, we can be changed. You and I, we can be restored. And that is also something we're celebrating, amen? And that leads me to mention one more reason why we celebrate Jesus' empty tomb. We celebrate the triumph of God. Jesus' resurrection shows us that God can and has defeated our greatest enemy, death. Psalm 89, 48, we find a question that we all know the answer to. It says, who can live and not see death? Or who can escape the power of the grave? Everyone point to yourself and say, not me. Young or old, rich or poor, Neither gender is spared, no class is exempt from this. We all die. In this world, nearly two people every second. More than 7,000 people an hour pass away on this planet. More than 144,000 people every single day. 52 million people every year. Just in this church, since January, we've done three funerals. One was yesterday. Death comes for all of us. The, the finest surgeon, he may be able to enhance your life, but he cannot eliminate your death. It's just like what Hebrews 9.27 says. People are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. And since we are all destined to die, most people have a real fear of death, except for those who are in Christ Jesus, because Jesus' resurrection takes away that fear from us. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 15 says that Jesus came to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And at Easter, we always recall those first words that Jesus spoke when he returned from death. He would always say, fear not, because he's coming up on these people. They're going, he died, and now he's there. He would always start with fear not. And as he emphasized in John chapter 14 and many other places in the word of God, because I live, you will live also. So we celebrate the, res the resurrection of Jesus because it defeats our greatest enemy, which is death. It's something that we no longer need to dread. In fact, Jesus' resurrection removes the reason for us to really fear anything. And yet, as people, we fear cancer and heart disease and, and and, and, and Parkinson's, and we fear other things like terrorism and, and tornadoes and hurricanes and plane crashes. But the most feared thing in the human heart is death. Death kills everyone, it kills everything. Without Jesus, we face death on our own. And there is absolutely no way to beat it. As Paul says in our text, in 2 Corinthians 15, 19, if only in this life we have hope in Christ we are, all, we are of all pe people most to be pitied. But we're not to be pitied. Not at all. Because we know that we have eternal life awaiting us. Why? Because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Because of our faith in Jesus, we need not fear these things any longer. Jesus' resurrection beats death. It takes away its ability to hurt us. Jesus' resurrection turns death into nothing more than a doorway into eternal life in God's presence. This is the main reason why we celebrate the empty tomb every Easter as Christians. We do so because it means that ultimately our tomb will be empty. Easter empties death of its power. And for that, I say thank you, Jesus. And if you don't have that assurance in your personal life today. My prayer all week long is that today would be a day of salvation for you. Scott, would you and the worship team come forward, please? This morning, we are going to take communion together. And when you arrived, you should have picked up some communion emblems out on the tables in the foyer before you came in. If you didn't do that, you'd like to get up from your seat and run and grab one, you're okay to do that. You can bring it back in here with you. 
Jesus asked us to remember what he accomplished on the cross. And we do this regularly as a church, but I cannot think of a better day to do this than on a day when we celebrate the finality of what he did on the cross, and that was his resurrection. This is a very appropriate time and a very appropriate day to do that. And so collectively, we are going to take communion together. But before we do, I've asked the worship team to come up and sing a song. And I would really like you to take the time to meditate on these words, and then we will come back up and we will take communion together. was a wretch I remember who I was I was blind I was lost I was running out of time Sin separated the breach was far too wide but from the far side of the chasm you had me
If you've never been to a Pentecostal church before, you've just experienced what you feared and what you've been told horrible things about. <laughs> that was a message in tongues, followed by an interpretation. The Bible tells us that if there is a message in tongues done publicly in a service like this, there is always to be an interpretation. Otherwise, it becomes something and we're going, what was that? In this case, the Lord gave our sister the message in tongues and the interpretation. Sometimes, someone from across the room will give the interpretation to that message of tongues. It's not so much important about what the process is. The importance of it is that God spoke through our sister to assure us that he is here and that what I'm telling you today is true. That is just but one more confirmation that we serve a risen Savior and he just worked through our sister and I thank you for your obedience. We're gonna move ahead with communion. And I wanna read a scripture to you that tells us that we are not to go into this moment carelessly. We are not to go into this moment without any kind of thought or to do so in an unworthy manner. In 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29, it says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. This is where those of you watching online at home and those who are here who don't know Jesus, this is where you can make a decision for Christ. According to this scripture, before any of us participates in communion, we need to examine ourselves before the Lord and in light of this, this holy moment. And if there be anything in your life that would bring judgment upon yourself, then we need to take it to the Lord and confess it in prayer. If you're carrying and harboring unforgiveness towards another person, you need to take care of that in prayer. If you are here today or watching online and you've never asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life, you can do so now. This is the point where you can receive salvation and to celebrate along with us what I've been talking about this morning, the empty tomb. In a moment, we're, we're gonna have a, just a time of silence where all you're gonna hear is Liz paying the keyboard behind me. There was a time where I used to pray during communion, but I thought it's best to be quiet before God and let every one of you pray yourself, silently, quietly, speak to the Lord on your behalf. And then I'll close that time of prayer and we will take communion. But during that time of prayer, simply, if you don't know Christ, tell him you believe in him. Tell him you believe he is the son of God. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. He will, he will come into your heart. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness, the Bible says. Let him know that you desire him to be that missing part of your life. If you don't know the Lord, I know there's a hole. There's a hole there. I know I walked around with it for a great portion of my life and it could only be filled by a relationship with Jesus. You've been trying to fill it with everything else, my friend, and none of it's gonna satisfy. The only one that will satisfy is Christ. And when you do that, then we take this communion together. You can do so and really understand what this is about because you've experienced his amazing grace right this moment. So let's take a moment and let's bow our heads in prayer and let's bring our petitions before the Lord.
Father, you have read our hearts long before we ever spoke words to you. But we thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you for the assurance of eternal life when our time on this earth is done. We thank you that through Jesus you offer us forgiveness of sin. And so as we prayed to you and as we've confessed things before you, God, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that now we can enter into this time of communion doing so with an open heart, a heart of thanksgiving for what you just did for us and what you continue to do for us every day with your amazing grace that is poured out upon us moment by moment. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we have an opportunity now to live in your presence. Thank you for your goodness. You have blessed us today. We thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. If you've never used disposable communion emblems before, on the top is a cellophane piece that you pull back to reveal the bread or the wafer. And then below that, is a foil one that you pull away to unveil the juice. Somebody told me they had a hard time with theirs this morning. So, work at it. And the night that Jesus was arrested, the night that he had his last supper with his disciples, He took the bread and he broke it. He gave thanks to the Father and he broke it. And he told them that this bread represented his body, which would soon be broken for him. I I don't know, as I said in the earlier service, that they fully understood what that meant. But they were going to find out very soon. Jesus' body was broken, beaten beyond recognition. By those stripes, however, we are healed. He carried all the burden of our sin and shame. He took that beating on our behalf. And as you partake of this bread this morning, I want you to be reminded of the bruised and battered body of the Son of God, the sinless Lamb of God. You made the bread. In the same manner, he took the cup He said that this represents my blood that is shed for you. He said this is the blood of the new covenant. He said every time you do this, I want you to be reminded of of what I'm about to do for you. And he died, as you know, on the cross, suffered dearly. But when you drink of this juice this morning, I want you to be reminded of the precious blood of the lamb that poured from his body out onto the beams of that cross and fell down to the ground. That blood is what covers your sin. That blood is what wipes your sin away. That blood is what makes you a new creation in Christ Jesus. It's nothing you can earn. It's a gift freely given. You may partake of the juice. Would you stand with us while we sing a song, please? The blood of Jesus Christ today, I want to tell you, I want to first of all say welcome to the family of God. Amen. 
you just made the greatest decision of your life. And as a church, we would like to come alongside of you and we would like to help you in your walk with Jesus in your Christian faith. We have classes that we have on Sunday morning during the 11 o'clock service. We also have a nine o'clock service so you can attend the service and go to these classes. There's a new class for the beginners called First Steps and it's for new believers. It's a 13 week class. You can jump in at any time. It continues to rotate and in 13 weeks after you've completed, you are given a beautiful study Bible with a custom cover with your name put on it. It's our way of saying, hey, we want you to stay in God's word. You need God's word if you're going to grow in your Christian faith. And uh, we'd love for you to be a part of that. We hope you'll consider joining us. There are other classes as well, but that's the starter. That's the starting point for new believers. For the rest of you, I just want to thank you for joining us today, again, online and here and in person. We're so glad that you chose to come to High Point to worship with us. Uh, We hope that you'll come back and join us. Consider being a part of our church family. I'd like to go ahead and close this service in prayer and then you can be dismissed. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. You've given us such a beautiful day for Resurrection Sunday. We're just reminded of your goodness, Lord, and your faithfulness. And we're so thankful that our God lives. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And because of that, we can live eternally in your presence. And there's nothing greater than that. We need not fear death. We need not fear all the things that man may throw our way because we know that we are in your hands and they are the most capable hands we could ever be in. So thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. As we leave here today, Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would go with each and every one of us. Walk with us the steps that we take, the places we go, the things that we do, the conversations that we have, that they would be conversations that would build people up and not tear them down. Pray that we would be bright lights in a very dark world that desperately needs the truth of the cross. Pray that you would give us opportunities to share your goodness with other people, that you would open doors and we would not be afraid to walk through those doors and share of your goodness. I also pray, Lord, that you keep us safe from COVID, keep us safe from any sicknesses and diseases, keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us to prevent us from coming together with our church family and worshiping you again in spirit and in truth. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your presence in this place and in our lives personally. Thank you for your goodness. As we leave here, Lord, help us to more and more become the men and women of God that you need us to be. And we ask these things in the precious and holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.